Hello, I'm Dr. Deed Harrison. It is Wednesday, June 18th, 2008. I will be uh, doing the CBP podcast for this month that will be available on idealspine.com. The topics for this podcast that I would like to present are number one, the ICA best practices available at www.icabestpractices.org. I'd like to tell you about number two, the CBP seminar schedule for this summer and early fall. And number three, my parents, Drs. Donald and Sang Harrison, retiring at the CBP annual this year in September. The fourth topic I would like to present for this podcast is Chapter 1 out of the new CBP Lumbar Rehab book. Before we begin, we have a uh, brief break from our sponsors. Talk to you in a minute. This podcast is brought to you by Posture Code, developers of the Posture Screen and Posture Ray software suites. For more information, browse to www.posturecode.com. Welcome back. The first topic of this month's podcast is the newly developed ICA best practices that we've uh, developed through the ICA. These are a set of uh, newly developed chiropractic guidelines for all chiropractors and for all techniques and really for the majority of patient conditions that would present to a practicing chiropractor's uh, clinic. These guidelines are available at www.icabestpractices.org. What we would like is for the majority of the profession, if possible, to go to this website, download and read the relevant parts of this ICA guideline and then provide constructive feedback, comments and criticism using the the available forms and structure presented on the the website. Also, practicing chiropractors, we'd like you to help us make your state associations aware of these guidelines so they can do the same. Review and provide constructive comment and criticism on these guidelines. Now, before we get into the the ICA guidelines, at least the the general overview of the guidelines. What I'd like to do is discuss with you the competing guidelines and one of the reasons why we decided to spearhead these guidelines a couple years ago. And when I say we, I mean my father, uh, myself, Dr. Len Siskin, and several other members of the ICA organization and several other members of the ICA Best Practices Committee. There is a competing guideline that is actually already in existence. Um, Different components of it are still being written and and revised, but these guidelines are going to affect the entire chiropractic profession. They'll actually infect it as well. These guidelines are called the CCGPP guidelines. Now, originally, these guidelines were endorsed and spearheaded or commissioned by COXA, which is the Congress of Chiropractic uh, state associations and Cox is really an, an ACA-driven organization. Cox commissioned uh, CCGPP and and basically gave them their start in, in you know a small sense of the word. 
The problem with the CCGPP is originally they somewhat lied to the chiropractic profession at large saying that these guidelines would, would not be a frequency and duration guidelines. Well, we, we saw through that two years ago. We knew that was a lie. It was only a matter of time before they developed frequency and duration guidelines for chiropractic care for a variety of conditions. And these guidelines now, uh, do they do have a frequency and duration component of it. In fact, they call it, uh, for example, one of the, the frequency and durations is for low back disorders, and it's called Chiropractic Management of Low Back Disorders, a Delphi Consensus Process. Now, so I can tell you, or so you realize that the CCGPP committee members have lied to the profession, let me just read you a couple quotes that were put out a while back by the CCGPP committee. In response to the, the concerns raised by the, the chiropractic profession, including myself and my father and the ICA, regarding frequency and duration, the CCGPP chairman at the time, Dr. Mark Dahan, put out this statement. The Council on Chiropractic Guidelines and Practice Parameters, the CCGPP, is currently in the process of developing the new chiropractic compass. This is a best practices document designed to direct the doctor of chiropractic toward a comprehensive health solution for the patient rather than providing only a cookbook recipe for a particular condition, i.e. we won't have cookbook frequency and duration. Further, another statement made by Dr. Ronald Farabaugh he was vice chairman at the time of the CCGPP. He stated, A guideline contains numbers and or suggested therapy time frames that are often mistakenly applied as arbitrary limits. A best practices, such as the CCGPP, is a process document that reviews the evidence and provides interpretation consistent with the chiropractic perspective as the providers involved in treating these cases using chiropractic methods. So what they're saying here is, hey, CCGPP is not going to be a frequency and duration set of guidelines. Well, lo and behold, they lied. They've just developed this spring their chiropractic frequency and duration, and they've supplied these frequency and duration guidelines to the state of California uh, under the workers' compensation uh, possible guidelines. The problem is, again, we, we know we've seen this thing before, they're going to give you about an average of 8 to 12 visits for a period of 2 to 4 weeks, depending on the condition. For example, the initial trial of chiropractic treatment for acute low back pain is 3 times a week for a duration of 2 to 4 weeks, and you reevaluate after uh, 2 to 4 weeks. For chronic low back pain, they give you a frequency of 2 to 3 times a week, for two to four weeks with a reevaluation after two to four weeks. For a recurrent flare-up, they, they give you a frequency of one to three times per week with a duration of one to two weeks and a reevaluation after one to two weeks. Now, you might say, well, that's a reasonable course to see if somebody's improving. The, the problem is whether or not that's going to allow you to actually pursue a continued course of treatment. They've, they've got a, say, a table that presents frequency and duration for continued courses of treatments, but they don't really say how that continued course of treatment would be justified. Like what if a patient 
in those initial eight to twelve visits didn't respond are you you just or you going to terminate them uh, or is the response to show improvement a forty five percent improvement in pain or disability and then you you will be allowed continued courses of treatments the problem is these these guidelines will be used as as set limits to dictate chiropractic uh, treatment frequency and duration and and really reimbursements from a third party position and the biggest problem with these guidelines is if you know anything about the Delphi process it's a consensus opinion what they did is they got together approximately uh, 40 chiropractors that they handpicked and they put on a panel and they gave them a set of of questions to guide them towards a frequency and duration uh, program of care for chiropractic treatment intervention now we're looking at the opinion of 40 people in the chiropractic profession and the problem is does the opinion of those 40 people match what what we really do as a profession and then one of the biggest problems is this could be contrary to the actual peer-reviewed literature available on the topic we we don't have any indication that frequency and duration was was utilized out of the the data available from the literature we're just looking at 40 people's opinions so this is an opinion set of guidelines it's class 5 or level 5 evidence which means it's the lowest form of evidence available so what we did in the ICA best practices we didn't want to have an opinion panel to develop frequency and duration guidelines so the ICA best practices set out to review all the available literature that we could locate on clinical chiropractic studies whether it was a randomized chiropractic intervention trial which is a level one study a non-randomized clinical control trial which would be a level two study a case series with controls or a case study with controls which would be a level three study or the case report which would be a level four study and then if there were were areas or conditions where there were no studies then we would go into class five or level five evidence which would be opinion however we relied on the other types of evidence instead of opinion when it was available or if there was no uh, con- uh, conflicting data available in the literature. That's when class 5 evidence would be used. No data or really direct conflicting data where you can't reach a consensus. So the, the ICA guidelines, for example, what we've done is we've reviewed all the randomized and non-randomized trials on low back pain. And in in those studies, we can look at the frequency and duration of the care utilized in those clinical trials and keep in mind we did the same thing for level three and level four evidence I'm just summarizing the level one and level two evidence we summarized their average frequency and duration and their average pain improvements and then we can use that to establish a reasonable initial frequency and duration trial of chiropractic care but we also, when we looked at that data, we found out that the average number of visits is correlated to the average pain improvement or pain response. For example, an average of eight chiropractic treatments 
gives an average pain improvement of 45% in the randomized trials. If we looked at studies that, that did a little more care, like 9 to 12 or 15 visits, we, we saw up to a 50-some percent, like 53, 54, 55% improvement. So we get the impression that the more treatments we provide, the greater the pain improvement is. And this is just an initial course of care. The, these randomized trials do not take the patients and follow them to what would be called maximum chiropractic improvement. In other words, they just arbitrarily stop the, the treatment after a, a mean number of visits that's predetermined in, in the, the study in the study setting. So we don't really know what would happen if we continued with chiropractic care for 30 visits, 40 visits, or 50 visits. So, in summary, the, the ICA guidelines actually developed frequency and duration based on the available data presented in the literature in all types of studies, level 1, randomized trials, all the way down through case studies, level 4. And we can develop a, an average frequency and duration to theoretically get the patient to maximum chiropractic improvement assuming a linear response to the dose of treatments that's given. We also developed a nonlinear response to the dose of chiropractic treatments provided. And what you'll see is we can get anywhere from 22 to 30 some odd visits to resolve or theoretically resolve a patient's low back pain condition. This type of analysis of course, has its limits because th there's no study that has actually taken a, a person and, and followed them through a course of care to get them to maximum chiropractic improvement in terms of a randomized or a non-randomized trial. Now, case reports, of course, do that. However, what we see is if we document the patient's improvements at a 12, 14, 15, 16 visit interval, and we see improvement in the patient condition, then the ICA guidelines recommend continued care. It, it's not an arbitrary type of, of, of cutoff where we don't specifically state what improvement is. For example, improvement in the ICA guidelines would be improvement in any one of, of a variety of variables. For example, improvement on a numerical rating scale for back pain improvement on an oswestry disability index for uh, back pain disability, how it's affecting your activities of daily living. The improvement on the SF36 or the RAND36 health status questionnaire. Are you improved in terms of your emotional and mental and social well-being uh, after a course of chiropractic care? Is your EMG improved? Is your posture improved? Etc. So all these improvements are taken into consideration when we look at prescribing or providing another course of chiropractic intervention in the ICA guidelines. And we simply don't see that in the CCGPP best practices. They're totally kind of don't describe the types of improvement and the, the limit of improvement that we would need for an initial or a, a second trial of, of continued chiropractic care. Uh, anyway, there, there's much more to the, the ICA best practices, and you can, you can read that for yourself, and you can see the, the comprehensiveness that, that we performed. Um, 
in in developing these guidelines. And what I would like you to do again is go to the ICA Best Practices website. Let's review those guidelines and let's provide the feedback for it. If we don't do this, we're going to face some some really serious challenges in the chiropractic profession from the CCGPP guidelines that have uh, already been developed and they're already being used in different states, for example, the state of California. And I, for one, don't want a, a group of 40 people determining by opinion what I can do in my practice. And hopefully you agree with that. And lastly, I, I would like to acknowledge the ICA Best Practice Committee members that just worked tire, tirelessly on this project that was directed by my father. And these individuals donated their time and, and their resources, their money, uh, for the cause. So if if you look at that guideline, you, you see who those people are. If you run into them, uh, give, give them your thanks and uh, give them your accolades. Or if you know who they are and you, you don't mind sending them an email, tell them thank you for that. Okay, that ends the first topic of this podcast. Uh, what we'll do is we'll take a brief break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll start topic number two. Thank you for the attention. Do you currently receive our AJCC? If not, be sure to email us your name and your clinic information, and we'll be sure to make sure that you get the next issue. Email us at webmaster at idealspine.com. Welcome back. For the second part of this podcast, I'd like to remind the CBP doctors and non-CBP doctors of the upcoming CBP seminars that are available this summer. The first available seminar is in July. And that seminar is July 19th through 20th. It's a neurology seminar that's taught by Dr. Dan Murphy. The seminar will be held in Casper, Wyoming. Again, that's July 19th and 20th, neurology in Casper, Wyoming. That course is part of the CBP Advanced Certification Program. For those of you that have not had the, the opportunity and privilege to hear Dr. Dan Murphy, you're absolutely missing out because he's he's certainly one of the most up-to-date and knowledgeable and, I mean, just flat-out amazing instructors that we have in the chiropractic profession today. So I don't think you'd want to miss that. Uh, even if you have attended, Dr. Dan Murphy certainly keeps up to date and, and he can uh, excite you with current and, and new knowledge that has application for the chiropractic profession with a neurology focus. The, the second available CBP seminar is in August. August 8th through the 10th is the CBP hands-on rehabilitation workshop that will be held in my uh, clinic in Elko, Nevada. And that's August 8th through the 10th. It's a hands-on CBP rehab workshop. This seminar is also part of the advanced certification program. At this workshop, we cover in, in depth the unique applications of patients doing CBP mirimage adjusting, mirimage exercises, and mirimage traction procedures. The unique part of about this is it's done in the office. I give you cases and you're required to do the setups and pick what type of traction you would do for this particular patient in your office. So all the doctors must interact and be willing to participate to make this event a success. 
and so far it it's been amazing in terms of the feedback that we've had from the doctors that have attended this in addition at that workshop i ask you to bring two of your own cases from your office whether they be easy cases uh, moderately difficult cases or advanced difficulty in their level and we'll go through the procedures that I would recommend in terms of the CBP side of it for rehabilitation. The The next available seminar is actually in the UK. In London, August 23rd through the 24th, I will be doing a thoracic rehabilitation and case management seminar. This seminar is new for this year and it's also part of the advanced certification program. This seminar really completes our rehabilitative uh, seminar series for the spine. We, we've in the past had a cervical and a lumbar rehab seminar, but we have neglected the thoracic spine. Well, well now we have quite a bit of knowledge and extra information in order to be able to present a unique new seminar. And again, the, the feedback from doctors that have attended this in, in the last year have uh, shown that the seminar is, is extremely um, recommended and, and very thorough in, it, in its approach. Uh, additionally, in the UK, the week after that, August 29th through the 31st, I will be conducting another CBP hands-on rehabilitation workshop with my colleague, Dr. Jeb McAveney. And this seminar will be held at Dr. Jeb's office in Belfast, Ireland. That's August 29th through the 31st. And again, that's a, a required course for CBP Advanced Certification. And then finally, in September, we have the CBP Annual Seminar. September 26th through the 28th, the CBP Annual Conference will be held in Las Vegas, Nevada. There's several themes in this year's annual. On Friday, we're going to have a guest speaker who's a chiropractic radiologist, and he will be presenting unique and new information that the chiropractic clinician needs to be aware of when analyzing films. Now, there may not be the CBP approach presented by the chiropractic radiologist, but the clinical radiology side of it that we all need to be aware of will certainly be detailed. And there will be a very nice user-friendly manner in, in which the material will be presented. And now in many states, for example in California, we, we need four hours of chiropractic radiology or ra spine radiology to have CE uh, license renewal credits. And unfortunately those credits need to be taught by a chiropractic radiologist or a radiologist. No longer does the state of California allow, for example, myself and my father to present chiropractic radiology uh, training courses for certification. And whether you agree with that or disagree with that, that's just the way it is, and I'm sure you know how I feel about that. Uh, the, the next theme at the CBP annual seminar will be on Saturday, September 27th, we will have a new rehabilitative procedure that has application to CBP technique procedures. And what we will do is we will have two CBP practitioners present information on how and which cases they utilize the power plate rehabilitative uh, equipment 
into their daily practices. They'll talk to you about not only case analysis and management, but also how you bill for this, how you set up your office, what types of staff that you need for this. And they'll talk about why this this new uh, equipment is needed in a rehabilitative uh, uh, program for chiropractic practices. And then on Saturday, we'll also have a couple guest speakers. We'll have Dr. Patrick Gentempo, and we'll have Dr. Scott Hewn. And for any of you that have heard Dr. Pat Gentempo, and if you haven't heard Dr. Pat Gentempo, you'll realize he's one of the most dynamic speakers in chiropractic today. He keeps up to date and current. He has his finger on the pulse of the profession. So I, I, I would highly recommend that you would attend this program. Additionally, Dr. Scott Hewen will be there, and Dr. Scott will talk about some unique case management uh, procedures that we need to understand when we talk about CBP rehabilitative care programs for today's unique patient populations. And Dr. Scott Hewen has been a CBP doctor for, for many, many years and has recently gone into the practice coaching and management side of chiropractic. So I, I think there's a lot to be learned from Dr. Scott in his presentation. On Sunday, I will be presenting as well as Dr. Don Meyer will be presenting. My presentation will be a contemporary re review of CBP scientific publications and really where the, the technique has come from and where we are today. It will review the past and current research that we've done and then the challenges that face us in the future. Dr. Don Meyer will be presenting uh, vibrational rehabilitation from the CBP side of things. Uh, Dr. Don has developed new equipment for CBP practitioners and it will build on the power plate theme that will be presented on Saturday. So the the annual should be a, a very exciting seminar. It promises to be very educational and I, I think you would uh, do well to attend this event. Uh, and also there's a special thing that we have happening at the annual seminar this year on Friday, September 26th, but I'm going to talk to you about that after the break. So right now we'll take a brief break for our sponsors, and I'll talk to you in a minute. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Posture Code, developers of the Posture Screen and Posture Ray software suites. For more information, browse to www.posturecode.com. Welcome back. For the third portion of the podcast for June 18th, 2008, I'd like to tell you about a special event that we're having Friday night, September 26th, during the CBP Annual Banquet at, at uh, the Tuscany Hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada. Unfortunately, this year my parents have decided to retire. Th this is both a, a very positive thing for me, but at the same time a, a very negative thing because of, of the involvement that I've had uh, with my parents and primarily with my father traveling uh, most of the weekends out of the year, co-teaching together CBP seminars. And now he's ready to retire from that 
and pass the CBP baton to me. And while I'm excited, as I said before, I'm also um, I'm, I'm humbly uh, sorry that that uh, I can't find the words for this, but uh, sorry that he won't be there uh, with me on a, a regular basis. Now that they will stay involved to a smaller extent. Uh, assisting me with different portions of the CBP seminar business, uh, specifically the American Journal of Clinical Chiropractic, and guest lecturing for my father at at key CBP seminars, and most likely the CBP annual event you'll see uh, my parents at. But on a regular basis, they they are not going to be present at the CBP seminars, and they're, they're going to go into retirement. So at the, the annual banquet, what we're going to do is do, do a, a very nice presentation summarizing the, the history of their contributions to the chiropractic profession and to CBP technique, which of course that's, that's a huge portion of my father and, and my stepmother's careers. Um, so if, if you join me at the CBP annual banquet Friday, September 26th to acknowledge my parents in their basically their selfless and tireless efforts for their years of dedication to the chiropractic profession. I, I hope to see you there and I, I hope to see uh, many old faces as well as new faces. So that, that's the third portion of the podcast. Uh, we'll take another brief break for our sponsors and we'll conclude with the fourth and final portion of the CBP uh, podcast. Thank you for your attention. Receive regular CBP research updates as well as seminar happenings and other chiropractic news by subscribing now to the CBP email newsletter right on the homepage at www.idealspine.com. Welcome back. Uh, This is the final section of the June 18, 2008 CBP podcast. For the final portion here, what I'd like to do is re-address a topic that I said at the end of 2007 that I would be addressing, and and that is going through the different chapters in the new CBP Lumbar Rehabilitation textbook. Now, it's not my intent to go through the, the entire content of each chapter, but what I would like to do is address the main points and main topics in each one of the CBP Lumbar Rehab uh, text chapters to give you a, a, a really comprehensive overview of what the book is all about. Also, this will update you, the chiropractor, in terms of lumbar spine disorders and the CBP approach to it. Now, this information, first and foremost, comes out of the new lumbar rehabilitation textbook. However, it's also the main content of the CBP lumbar rehabilitation seminar that we hold. And this CBP Lumbar Rehab Seminar is one of the five seminars that's required for our basic certification program. If you've attended that seminar within the last nine months, you've heard many of the portions of the new Lumbar Rehab book. However, I know that several of you doctors out there have not been to the CBP Lumbar Rehab Seminar, and many of you may have taken it, but you haven't taken it in an awful long time. 
I personally and my father also have made every effort to update our seminars at least once every two years. So there's new and improved content in the seminars at least every two years. So without further ado, what I'd like to do is go through Chapter 1 out of the new CBP Lumbar Rehabilitation text. Chapter 1 is entitled Lumbar Disorders, the Role of Structural Rehabilitation and Ergonomics. This particular chapter really sets the stage for the rest of the book. It presents the problem of low back pain and presents our CBP part of the, the equation in terms of the solution for the low back problem. What I would like to do is go through some relevant points for you, the reader, that's in this chapter one. To begin, we'll talk about the uh, prevalence of low back pain. First and foremost, we know that low back pain and related disabilities of the lumbar spine are a, pers a persistent problem for all the industrialized nations, and the United States is no different. In the United States, for example, for, for adults under 45 years of age, low back pain is the most common work disability that we have. And it is the fourth leading cause in adults in terms of uh, a, a low back pain between the ages of 45 to 64 years old in terms of work disability. At any given time, approximately 7% of the U United States working population suffers back-related disability for an average of 23 days each year, where 2% of these suffer from back pain on a daily basis, and half of these 2% or 1% are temporarily disabled on any given day of the year. Now, I'm, I'm not going to throw out the references for these particular statements I'm making because what you can do is you can go to the Lumbar Rehab book, Chapter 1, and you can find these. So for the purpose of being brief, I, I will re leave out the references. So what we find out in the United States is no different than other industrialized nations is that low back pain is a, a major concern. It affects a, a large percentage of our population. And as I stated, it's one of the, the number one disabilities for the working population. Now, the cost of treatment of, of lumbar disorders is astronomical. Uh, on an annual basis, for uh, work disability payments, lost time from work, diagnostic tests, and then treatment, it's estimated that between 20 and $50 billion are spent each year. The, the problem is, with low back pain, is we, we have a dichotomy of views that are available in the literature. Nobody debates the, the previous statements that I've just gone through. However, we, we do find that there's a problem in terms of the way low back pain is viewed in terms of its natural history. For example, one viewpoint is that the majority of low back pain is an acute injury or it can be an acute flare-up of a chronic episode that generally remisses or goes away on its own with or without treatment interventions. Now, this was a prevalent past thought of low back pain. However, we find out that it, it's still quite common in today's scientific literature for individuals to still have, hold that same uh, perception. For example, in the chiropractic literature, there's some authors that still believe that spinal pain, including low back pain, 
uh, tends to improve on its own and pain levels decline over time without treatment. And I'll actually give you the reference for that statement. It was in the Journal of the Canadian Chiropractic Association in 2006, authored by Cooperstein et al. Also, the the, uh, CCGPP guidelines that I discussed earlier in this podcast, they have a statement in there where they claim that low back pain is self-limiting as well. When we track this statement down, we find out that one of the main articles that this this viewpoint comes from is from an author by the name of Dixon, where Dixon claimed that 90% of low back pain was self-limiting. In other words, it went away on its own. Now, a, a good friend of mine, and, and some of you know him, Dr. Dan Murphy, helped us track this uh, Dixon article down. And Tracking this down was quite a challenge for Dr. Murphy, and I assisted with some of this as well. For example, White and Punjabi in their 1990 textbook uh, quoted Alf Nockhamson, who misquoted the Dixon article, or the Dixon uh, claim. Uh, for example, White and Punjabi and Nockhamson claimed a 90% recovery of acute low back pain episodes based on the record review in a general practice setting put forth by Dixon. However, when we actually track down the the Dixon study, we find out that Dixon's study is not really a study. It's a, a presentation or a lecture with no data that was presented at the British Association for Rheumatology and Rehabilitation's annual meeting in London, March 1973, on page 165. Now, Dixon in his lecture, referred to an author by the name of Fry. Now, tracking down Fry was difficult as well. However, we tracked down Fry. It's a 1972 lecture where Fry stated, in an average general practitioner's practice each year, 125 patients could be expected to present with soft tissue rheumatism or acute back pain. Of these 125 patients, 50 would be likely to be suffering from acute back pain and 25 from acute neck pain. 44% of the patients with acute low back pain lost their symptoms in less than one week and 82% in less than four weeks. So we actually find out that Dixon didn't have a study. Dixon quoted Fry, and Fry quoted a retrospective record review in a private practice setting where it wasn't 90%, it was 82% of the subjects were claimed to recover in less than than four weeks. Now, the main problem with this data is that this is a retrospective review of records out of a private practice. There's really no data presented whatsoever. We don't have any pain and disability questionnaires on these folks. And the the really, the critical issue is that the definition of recovery was such that the patient was deemed recovered if they didn't present back to the private practice setting. In other words, if they didn't come back for their follow-up appointment, they must have been out of back pain. Now, clinically, with today's knowledge, we know that that's just absurd 
to put forth uh, a conclusion based on that type of data. The, the patient may not have come back to that particular practice for several reasons. And a main reason would be they weren't getting helped with their back condition, so they went somewhere else. So right away we know that this, this type of data to claim that low back pain is self-limiting and 80 to 90% of the people recover without treatment is a, a ridiculous statement. In, in reality, no scientist and no clinician should quote that type of data. When, when we look at the op- opposing view, where we actually look at studies on the natural history of, of low back pain itself, we find almost exactly the opposite conclusions and these conclusions are strongly supported by actual prospective studies where most investigations have identified that about 75% of patients with acute low back pain will continue to have problems. At the 3 and 12 month follow-up of an acute low back pain subject only 21% and 25% respectively at 3 and 12 months of acute low back pain patients will be recovered. So what we see is that the majority are not recovered. So we see approximately 75 to 80 percent of these patients still suffer low back pain at 3 and 12 months. Now there was a very nice paper that was published I believe in Pain in 2005 and again refer to the lumbar rehab text chapter 1 for the the full citation. Uh, This was one of the longest follow-ups ever done on a cohort of individuals with low back pain. This was done in Finland and it was using a population of Finnish metal workers. Now they reported the initial low back pain and leg pain incidence rate and they did a 5-year, a 10-year, and a 28-year follow-up on these same subjects. And what they found is at the initial follow-up, 54% of the cohort reported low back pain. 25% of the initial cohort reported radiation of pain into the lower extremity, or leg pain. Now, at the five-year mark, we found, or they found that 75% of the cohort that originally had low back pain still suffered back pain at five years. At 10 years, 73% of them still suffered back pain. And at 28 year, 88% of the initial cohort that reported back pain were still reporting back pain. So we find out that the majority of patients continue to suffer low back pain at 5, 10, and 28 years. A similar finding was, was identified for the leg pain. Slightly less percentage of of the subjects reported pain at follow-up. However, at five years, 66% of the subjects were still presenting with lower extremity pain. At 10 years, it was 65%. And at 28 years, it was 69% of the initial cohort that had leg pain. They were still suffering leg pain. So what we find out is the natural history of low back pain is not so promising. It, it shows that the condition is somewhat resistant to any type of intervention because these people were doing things in the between the 5, 10, and 28-year follow-up. So we find out that it's a crisis. It does not resolve on its own. Now, that's in adults. Interestingly enough, what we find out in children is a very similar thing. The studies in the literature are showing now that 
a risk factor for, for back pain into adulthood is actually low back pain in adolescence. For example, there are studies that have found a, a prevalence of 10 to 13 percent for back pain in the adolescent population, and this 10 to 13 percent are the ones that have a greater likelihood of having increased and recurrent episodes of low back pain in, into adulthood. There's been 25-year follow-ups where they've found similar things, a positive correlation between low back pain in adolescence and pain into adulthood. Also, we, we find in adolescence, during the adolescent years, we find out that the majority of adolescents that report back pain, let's say at the age of 13, 14, or 15, they're going to be the ones that report adolescent back pain at the years 16, 17, and 18. Now, this information is important because oftentimes we we hear the minimization of back pain in children and in adolescents. Oh, it'll just go away on its own because they recover from these. Well, that's not true. We, we find out that the truth is exactly opposite. This is a crisis, folks. When we see a, an issue that affects children and adolescents, and that's the number one risk factor for this, the same issue into adulthood, we've got to be concerned about that. And, and again, those references are in the Lumbar Rehab book. Now, th- now the problem is, Oftentimes, we want to minimize the low back pain condition because that helps the person cope with it and perhaps eases the psychosocial aspect of of back pain. So if we tell somebody, oh, don't worry, the back pain gets better on its own, it, it puts them at ease. You don't scare them into thinking, oh, you're, you've got a serious problem that's going to affect you for the rest of your life. Nobody wants to hear that. But the truth of the situation is just that. If you don't do something about it now and find something that solves this, then the chances are these people are going to have back pain for years to come. It's not a scare tactic. It's the truth. You don't minimize it, but you do want to put it into context and let the person know they still still are going to be able to be a normal adult and they're going to be able to function, but they may have some limitations in terms of what they can do. Okay, now what I'd like to do is talk about the low back pain treatments. And really in this lumbar uh, textbook, we're talking about physical interventions that chiropractors can do. The, the problem with low back pain is that there's a multitude of conservative physical treatments that one can pursue. And loosely, these can be categorized into high-velocity, long-lever spinal manipulation techniques, uh, chiropractic segmental spinal adjusting techniques, back schools, ergonomic training programs, general strength and conditioning exercises, yoga stretching, uh, Pilates types of exercises for specific stabilization training. We can do flexion distraction types of treatment, traction treatment, and then, of course, postural types of exercises. Now, each one of these categories can be decomposed into different elements, and and that's not what I want to do here, and that's not what was done in Chapter 1. What we want to do is understand that all the treatments that I've just mentioned have limitations. All of them would theoretically have applications, but they all have limitations as well. These interventions can be ineffective in many cases, and so what we'd like to do 
is look at the, the best available evidence and see where these treatments fail and in what group are they most effective. Now that can be a challenging thing to do, especially when we look at the, the available literature, what we find out is that in the majority of studies, for example, in a randomized trial, we we don't have the ability to look at who specifically failed the program and who specifically responded to the program. That was uh, the general state of the knowledge in the past. However, in the last several years, some very nice studies have come about where they're looking at subgroups of people in a randomized trial. They're looking at a specific population that responded best to the care versus the individual that, that actually did not respond at all or got worse. So we could subgroup these individuals out. And when we do that, we start to be able to identify particular people that seem to be the best responders to a ter certain type of intervention and certain people that don't respond to a certain type of in intervention. For example, a study was done in spine in the uh, mid-2000s where they compared a general strength and conditioning program for re rehabilitation of the back and abdominal muscles to a specific program of stabilization exercises for the low back and abdominal region. And what they did is they identified 55 low back pain patients who had a, a recurrent history of general non-specific low back pain. These people had uh, no real signs of clinical instability on movement. They didn't have out-of-plane movements on flexion extension. Uh, they were just a general, chronic, recurrent low back pain population with no leg pain and no uh, specific signs of, of the low back uh, pain injury. And what they did is they, they grouped them randomly into two treatment programs, the general strength and conditioning and the specific stabilization training group. They did an eight-week follow-up, uh, or excuse me, they did an eight-week exercise program and a three-month follow-up of the data. What they found was the self-reported disability improved more in the general strength and conditioning group than it did in the specific stabilization exercise group. So for this particular category of low back pain, general low back pain, we find from this randomized trial that the general strength and conditioning is superior to the specific stabilization exercise program. Now, there, there are several studies out there that have done this for exercises, and what I would like to do is summarize the results from this specific subgroup analysis from the available clinical trials that have been done. Now, there's a table that's presented in Chapter 1 where this information comes from, and I'm, I'm going to present a summary of this information. In terms of stabilization training, where we, we train specific muscle groups like the multifidus, like the transverse abdominus, and, and you, you know the programs that are out there. For example, uh, Craig Liebenson teaches a, a very nice program uh, for functional rehabilitation, and a lot of that data comes from Stuart McGill, Ph.D. from Canada. And stabilization training is promoted as the most scientific and most evidence-based type of exercises that we could do for low back pain. 
Well, what we actually find out is there's really not a specific study that actually proves that stabilization training is superior for a specific subgroup of low back pain. So it doesn't exist as of 2007. I don't know if a study has come out in 2008. But the idea is this, that in a person less than 40 years of age with increased spine and hip flexibility, so we have increased range of motion in the lumbar spine and the pelvic region, with out-of-plane movements during flexion extension activities, for example, if somebody flexes and extends but they have a large out-of-plane lateral bend or axial rotation wobble, that's an out-of-plane movement. Or in a patient that has an instability catch with active movements, where they bend forward and at 20 degrees they get this catch pain and they, they, they can't work through it. But when they go through it, they don't have the pain anymore. It's an instability catch. Or in a, a female that had multiple deliveries and they have pain on different provocation tests, specifically around the uh, posterior sacral iliac ligaments like the long dorsal sacral iliac ligament these are the type of people that theoretically would respond to specific stabilization training however again there's not a randomized trial that specifically shows that moving to extension exercises now there are a couple of randomized trials that show that there's a specific subgroup of people with low back pain that respond best to lumbar extension exercise training for example, a person with low back pain or leg pain that is not aggravated by extension itself or worsened, like they can have it but it's not increased. A person with an anterior thoracic translation with or without a kyphotic lumbar spine. So if a person had anterior thoracic translation, they would seemingly respond to extension exercises. If a person has a kyphotic lumbar spine or a straightened lumbar spine with a forward trunk posture, they would respond to extension exercises. And also the individual that generally has a reduced extension flexibility with active movement. These people seem to be the ones that respond best to an extensive extension exercise program. Now that makes sense from a CBP point of view. We, we look at these people are the ones we would do mirror image exercises to. And the evidence in the literature says that they would respond best to that. For trunk postural translation exercises like CBP technique utilizes and like the McKinsey technique system utilizes in physical therapy, the data suggests that when the person with low back pain has a visible postural translation of the trunk, that means either anterior or posterior translation or left and right translation, if we move them into the opposite posture, where CBP calls it the mirror image, if the pain improves or is not worsened by this, then these people are the ones that would seemingly respond best to this type of, of uh, exercise. Again, it's trunk translation with pain that does not become worsened when we try to correct the displacement. Now that's the whole premise of the McKinsey system, but it's also the premise of CBP technique. We take somebody's posture and we look at it, we assess it, and we do an opposite movement 
we call it the mirror image because we're moving them past the midline in order to get them to achieve midline stance. And then I've already talked about the general strength and conditioning program. That's for a person with non-specific recurrent low back pain and no clinical instability signs. So what we find out is there is a population of people with low back pain that will respond to a specific type of intervention. And identifying that would be very important for that individual patient. However, sometimes you cannot identify a program that they will best respond to, so we use the shotgun approach. We, we try different things and we see what they respond to. Moving into the physical intervention of spinal manipulative therapy, we find out that, yes, indeed, there, there's good evidence, in fact, great evidence, that spinal manipulative therapy, as performed by chiropractors, is effective for uh, different types of low back disorders. Uh, there's good evidence that low back spinal manipulative therapy offers benefits to patients with, with both subacute and chronic low back pain and back pain disability. Uh, for example, studies have identified that lumbar spinal manipulation and Cox flexion distraction technique provide greater relief from chronic low back pain in people with and without ridiculous symptoms than exercise programs alone. And these results are maintained at, at long-term follow-up. So, so we see that studies have shown that what we do as chiropractors is perhaps more effective in some populations than exercise for low back pain. And that's a very important statement. One of the, the uh, most interesting papers that came out, I think, in 2005, it was by Childs et al., uh, is a study where a, a, a group of people were randomly allocated to either an exercise alone group or an exercise group combined with spinal manipulative therapy for the low back. And these people had chronic low back pain. Now, Childs did an interesting thing. They classified the outcomes of these people as to whether a patient experienced an increase in their low back pain disability, not just a decrease. And what Childs et al. found out was the, the subjects that were randomized to the exercise alone group without spinal manipulative therapy, these people were eight times more likely to experience an increase in their low back pain disability compared to the patients who received spinal manipulation of the low back with exercise. So the child's paper is an interesting paper because it says if we don't combine spinal manipulative therapy with an exercise program, the chances are the person may experience a negative result instead of a positive result. And as chiropractors, we know that there's reasons for this occurring. A, a patient could have a fixated joint that's not moving, and when we try to exercise and load that joint, we're going to get an exacerbation of pain from that joint. Also, the, the segments above and below that fixation might undergo too much movement and create a, a p increased pain response. And there's some other reasons too, but th that's the, the easiest one to explain in a podcast such as this. Now, moving to the, the subgroup analysis for spinal manipulative therapy, th this is where we can really get fired up as chiropractic clinicians. We can see some good and we can also see some negative with this. Recent randomized trials have begun to look at subgroup analysis of different populations with low back pain in order to identify 
a specific group of patients with low back pain that respond best to what we do as chiropractors. And we'll call these optimal responders. Now, the problem is, it's, it's not that we don't want to identify a population of patients that respond the best. The problem is, it's, number one, what we define as an optimal response, and then how the results of that are going to be used in guidelines and in insurance settings. And I'll address that in a second. Now, or a minute. Now, first, a successful subgroup or an optimal responder is is typically defined like this. A patient with chronic low back pain who exhibits a 50% reduction or greater in disability as measured by the Oswestry Disability Index within one to two treatments. Now, let's think about that definition for a minute. They have to be 50% better on an Oswestry Disability Index within the first two treatments in order to be an optimal responder. So if somebody improved 50% in 10 treatments, that's not an optimal responder. Now, you can start to get the idea that this may be used against us as clinicians in guidelines. We, we may see that, oh, only the people that we identify as the optimal responder subgroup should be given the intervention of spinal manipulative therapy. And they should only receive one to two treatments. This becomes a, a pretty serious issue. And in fact, some of the guidelines are starting to use this type of evidence. What they do is they say, we've already identified the people that respond best to what we do. You need to identify those with specific exam findings and procedures. You give them a few visits and they should be better. And don't treat the person that's not the optimal responder. That That's kind of what's, what, what's happening in, in some of these new guidelines to a small or even a great extent. And my view on it as not only a researcher but a clinician is it's nice to know that a person's going to respond or should respond optimally. But what if a person responds with a 50% reduction in pain and disability after 30 visits? Does, does that mean it wasn't a successful intervention program for that person? What, what if it took 100 visits to get the person 80% better? Does that mean that it wasn't successful for that person? So you, you get the point. Clinically, this subgroup analysis, while it's interesting and it's nice to be able to identify these people that will respond best to what we do, it doesn't mean that those are the only people that we should use spinal manipulative therapy uh, as an intervention on. And then also, it, it doesn't tell us, well, what else can we do for the people that don't respond? So there's some limitations to this, and there's some serious issues that may result from this type of studies. And uh, trust me, I, I've seen my fair share of uh, misrepresentation of this subgroup data at, at different chiropractic research uh, interventions, and you can ask, ask me that in private sometime, and I'll let you know about it. Um, so what I'd like to do is move into the CBP uh, type of intervention for low back pain. What what we find out is that spinal manipulative therapy, like anything else, has its place. It is very effective for people with back conditions, and we can identify the, the subgroup now that, that best responds to that type of intervention. But 
what we also want to look at is, well, what else can be done for these people that may be optimal responders, and what else can we do for the people that are not optimal responders? And that brings us into this, the CBP component. And what we find out is, you know, typically speaking, people with low back pain that are treated with standard chiropractic technique interventions, these people are often left with chronic abnormal spine postures of the thoracolumbar pelvic region and chronic abnormal alignment of their lumbar lordosis. And these abnormal alignments may predispose these populations to future low back pain. That's not an unreasonable hypothesis. And there's data in the literature that supports that. And that's reviewed in in this chapter one as well. For example, traditional rehabilitation exercises for the low back actually have strong data that the treatments cannot routinely reposition skeletal segments and correct the posture. So these these uh, interventions, although effective for certain types of low back pain, they don't produce a structural correction in the person's spine and posture. And that may predispose them to future episodes of low back pain and continued episodes of low back pain that don't remiss. Now, in CBP, we have a theoretical and an average alignment for the spine. We have modeled the sagittal plane curves of the cervical, thoracic, and lumbar regions with different geometric curves. We have presented this data in the literature, and we have presented both ideal and average models. For example, the ideal model is actually based on a subset of optimal people without low back pain. And then we take their curves that we've identified and we construct a theoretical ideal model that closely resembles that. Also, we've presented the exact average model for these subjects and the standard deviation of the model for the subjects. And from this modeling, we can construct ideal and average values for the segmental angles and total angles of spinal curvature. Now, strictly speaking, on the low back, we've modeled the, the lumbar lordosis as a segment of, the ellip, of an ellipse where the upper lumbar spine is straight and the lower lumbar spine has a nice curve to it. So we find out that two-thirds of the lumbar lordosis comes from the segments L4 to S1, and then it gradually straightens out until we get no curve at, T12, at the T12 L1 segments. Now, from the postural point of view, we need the ribcage center of mass aligned with the center of mass of the pelvis. And we, we look for the thorax to be vertically aligned with the pelvis in the, in the lateral view and the A to P or the P to A view. Now, certainly there's a tolerance of the spine where the spine can shift a few millimeters left or right or forward and backwards, but if we go out of a certain tolerance then the loads acting on the spinal tissues, and including the discs, ligaments, and muscles, are going to be abnormal, and that's going to predispose the person to degenerative joint conditions and back pain. And that evidence is reviewed in this Chapter 1. Now, we have these ideal models, so the CBP approach is that we're going to try and move the person's abnormal spine and posture back towards the ideal or average values. And when we do that, 
we, we need different types of interventions instead of just spinal manipulative therapy. So in CBP technique, we have developed procedures where we can exercise the person's spine and posture back towards ideal and average models. We can adjust the, the spinal segments and posture back towards ideal and average values, and, and that's different than spinal manipulation. We're doing physical corrective maneuvers, not segmental uh, manipulation or mobilization. And then we also have traction uh, intervention where we can physically deform or remodel the shape of, of the lumbar spine back towards the ideal and average models. And the evidence for doing this is reviewed in this chapter one. And what we find out is the evidence for CBP technique rehabilitative procedures for the low back pain uh, or for low back conditions actually shows that our methods are able to correct the thoracolumbar pelvic spine and postural displacements at the same time as resolving chronic back pain. And the interesting thing, when we look at the the average pain improvement in the CBP studies that were done, we find out that we have an approximate 70 to 80 percent improvement in a weighted analysis where we take the number of subjects that we treated and then the given outcomes. We find out about a 70 to 80 percent improvement in chronic back pain using CBP technique methods. Now what I didn't tell you is that the evidence for standard spinal manipulative therapy for the low back and for low back pain shows that on average the the, the person's pain in chronic low back pain is only reduced 45%. So we only have a 45% improvement in the average study with lumbar spinal manipulative therapy. If you compare that to the CBP studies, we're seeing a 70 to 80% improvement in back pain. Now, this suggests that one of two possibilities have occurred. Number one, it could be the unique interventions that CBP technique utilizes in terms of correction of the spine and posture. It could be that that specific intervention or program of intervention is more successful at reducing chronic pain. However, one piece of missing information that I didn't tell you is that CBP technique, the studies and the technique itself, we recommend and we utilize more visits. The average study for somebody with low back pain in terms of the number of visits that we've done, the average study utilizes approximately 36 to 40 treatment sessions, whereas the average study with lumbar spinal manipulation only uses about 8 to 9 treatment sessions. So in 8 to 9 treatment sessions with lumbar spinal manipulative therapy, we see a 45% improvement in chronic back pain intensity, whereas in CBP technique with 36 to 40 treatments, we see a 70 to 80% improvement in back pain intensity. And in my opinion, likely there's two reasons why the intervention might be more successful. And it, it has to do with the number of treatments, as already uh, presented in the earlier part of this podcast, and it has to do with the type of treatment. We're correcting the spine and posture, which reduces the mechanical loading acting on the spinal tissues, and that should in turn reduce the pain episodes. So we think that both of those are viable. 
in in summary, what we find out when you look at the evidence for CBP technique in this chapter one, we find out that there's approximately five statements that we can make. CBP technique procedures combined in a treatment intervention program are more effective than than the natural history of chronic low back pain itself. In other words, doing CBP technique is better for the person than just doing nothing. Improvements in back pain and alignment in our CBP studies have been shown to be maintained at one-year follow-up. We've done three one-year follow-ups, and actually uh, a little bit longer than one year in a couple studies. Number two, CBP adjusting procedures where we adjust the posture back towards midline called mirror image adjusting, when used alone, are just as just as effective at reducing pain intensity and improving range of motion as traditional spinal manipulative therapy. So adjusting in CBP technique alone by itself without exercise and traction is just as effective as traditional spinal manipulative therapy. That data comes from a randomized trial done in the early 1990s at Palmer Chiropractic College. Point number three, CBP technique procedures produce consistent statistically significant improvements in thoracolumbar spine and postural alignment. Point number four, in chapter one, by reviewing the the available data, in well-designed case studies, CBP technique procedures, exercise adjustments, and traction improve chronic low back pain, patients' pain and disability, where standard interventions, for example, exercise and spinal manipulation, have failed. And then point number five, comparing the ending pain results for a trial of spinal manipulative therapy versus CBP technique structural rehabilitation procedures for the lumbar spine produce greater reductions in pain in chronic low back pain subjects. And that's what I've stated earlier. CBP technique procedures improve chronic pain more than standard lumbar spinal manipulative therapy in the studies in the literature. Okay, so hopefully uh, you've enjoyed my presentation of uh, the main topics in, in Chapter 1. Uh, obviously, there's there's much more information in, in this chapter, and, and certainly all the references are available in that chapter. Uh, what I try to do is, is give you a... Um, a nice, concise overview of the main topics in there. Uh, Hopefully you've enjoyed this presentation, and I I enjoyed presenting this podcast to you, and I look forward to talking to you again uh, relatively soon. Thank you, and uh, until next time. This segment is brought to you by Posture Code developers of the new X-ray digitizing software known as Posture Ray. For more information on Posture Ray, please browse to www.posturecode.com.